Today on China Talk, we have a guest-hosted show by longtime China Talk editor Nicholas Welch. Well, I'm not Jordan Schneider. I'm Nicholas Welch. I'm one of Jordan Schneider's editors at China Talk. I'm here in Taipei with Paul Huang of the Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation. We're going to talk about Taiwan defense strategy, what Paul's hot takes are on Taiwan's military strategy, what Taiwan's military needs for the future to be. Prepared for an invasion, and what the implications are for the United States and the PLA and the whole world. Welcome back to China Talk, Paul Huang.、Uh, thank you for having me. Well, first, you a few months ago wrote a brief commentary at NBR about the United States Department of Defense China Military Power Report,、uh, and you had some fighting words to say.、Uh, in particular, you mentioned that Taiwan. From a functional level, is completely unprepared for an invasion today. Just、uh, could you just reflect on that for a moment, and why do you think Taiwan is unprepared, and what does it need to do to be prepared for a PLA invasion? So the, the U.S. Department of Defense, their NBR report on China's military, they also had a section discussing Taiwan's military and defense, and in in that report, it made some pretty embarrassing errors, I would say. That cited the numbers that such as that I saying that Taiwan has a two million strong reserve force. Now that really doesn't exist. Taiwan does not have two million reserve force. There is no way that Taiwan can mobilize two million troops in any conceivable scenario.、Uh, and if you ask me, I would say the number of reserve that Taiwan would have in a realistic war scenario is probably close to zero, just because. That China is not going to give Taiwan the time to mobilize its reserve, and even if mobilized, the way that Taiwan's reserve force is structured, there are only infantry reserve brigades without even functional heavy artillery or mobile equipment or any things that you would consider a necessity in modern warfare. They're not going to survive. They're not going to put out. Good amount of fight. If you look at the history, the the, the militaries, the countries that attempted such low quality level of mass reserve force, they all fail. They fail miserably. Now, since we are talking today in 2023, many people will bring up the examples of Ukraine. Now, look, Ukraine succeeded in defending itself, in pushing back the bulk of the Russians' invasions in 2022 until today, mostly because its standing military. The Ukraine armed forces and also its national guards, including the、uh, the controversial Azov battalion, they put out a huge fight, and they could they they were still standing after days and weeks after Russia made their initial、uh, offensive. That's why Ukraine is has been fighting and is still fighting today. It's not because of the territorial defense force that everyone talk about. They contribute to the fight, but not as much as people then have assumed. And Taiwan's reserve force is not territorial defense force. Taiwan's reserve force is a poorly organized, poorly designed holiday reserve troops that really you are not going to be able to put in any fighting position, especially not in two, three days' notice. And even the BLA is not going to give you two or three days, just because they can determine when, where, and how they're going to strike. The first strike, what we call the alpha strike, there'll be such coordinators, such extensive, such that、uh, it's probably going to overwhelm Taiwan's command and control and ability to even call up its reserve. Right. Not to mention the reserves are 
uses by design. Yeah, well, to draw another Ukraine parallel, critics of that viewpoint would point to, for example, the United States' excellent intelligence reports in advance of the Ukraine invasion. Uh, they were able to warn the entire world that something was coming. And many people in this PLA policy debate would say the same thing. There's no way that China could mobilize a force sufficient to take Taiwan by force without um, satellites or intelligence picking up these kind of movements. Do you have any response to that and why the PLA would be different here? Well, first, uh, there's really no comparison between Russia's uh, armed forces and China's uh, PLA. That is just night and day. I'm sorry, the, the Russian forces from last March to today, you can tell it's not an effective fighting force. That's that they have gone a long way since the time of Soviet Union of the Red Army. They have just gone downhills ever since. And that their weaknesses and their problems now only got fully exposed, but you can really tell that even after one year, they have not made any significant improvement to its fighting capability, its joint operation, its use of air power, which should be a strong suit, uh, its use of missiles, its use of long-range munitions, its everything. They have not improved. They have been terrible from day one, and they have given Ukraine nothing but easy target to attack. And if you think the Chinese PLA is comparable to the Russians, well, well, then you don't know anything about what's going on in China right now. Well, who's to say anyone knows anything about the PLA? Others would point to the fact that, for example, the PLA has never engaged in any actual warfare since the late 70s when Deng Xiaoping decided to send the PLA to Vietnam. So in contrast to the United States, for example, which has extensive fighting experience across every decade virtually of its existence. Um, any reflections there? How do we know what the PLA's capabilities really are? Well, for open, publicly available information, including their, their own propaganda, the Chinese state TV, state television, the CCTV, they have uh, a variety of channels, one of which is dedicated to military reporting about the PLA, mostly about the PLA. And if you, if you have been following that channel for the last 10, 20 years, it's, it's, it's really like nothing that you have seen today. 20 years ago, it would just be PR propaganda, similar to what Taiwan's military, Taiwan state media is putting out about Taiwan's, about these research training, about Taiwan's exercises. Right? They, they show politics, they, the politicians uh, wearing helmets and, and, and taking selfie with troops or they show these artillery lining up, uh, firing to the sea and, and, and call that an exercise. The POA today, they don't do, do that anymore. The POA today, if you look at their, even their own propaganda, they talk about in detail the, the exercises, the challenges, the tests the, that have been put in that these units, these troops, they have to overcome to fulfill that exercise, to, to, to achieve their objective. They talk about the, these officers, these pilots, these uh, sailors, radar operators, missile operators, and they talk about how they, they, they reveal amazing amount of information about what they have been focused on, which is to perfect their, their, their capability. You contrast that with what's going on in Taiwan's military today, and you should be, you should be scared. If you feel Taiwan, you feel living in Taiwan like I am. Not to mention that I'm, I myself, I'm, a reserve, I'm a, still a reservist, liable to be recalled into service uh, if something goes wrong. Of course, if my research holds that uh, they won't even have time to mobilize me to call me out, uh, 
just because of 21st, 24, 40 hours, their communications, their command control, probably going to get knocked out you know, before they even think about mobilizing any, anyone, such as me. Yeah, as you mentioned, the PLA has been moving less toward propaganda and more toward real abilities. And that's been reflected even in super recent news. Uh, in May 26, for example, a Chinese J-16 fighter jet flew directly in front of a U.S. Air Force RC-135, forcing it to fly through its wake. It did this twice. And then the next week, June 3rd, we had in a U.S.-Canada joint naval exercise in the Taiwan Strait, you had a uh, Chinese guided missile destroyer sail within 150 yards of the Canadian destroyer. What do you think these recent wantonly risky moves are suggesting about the PLA's capabilities? Are these actually exertions of real power? Are they mere foreign policy tricks that Xi Jinping is directing to be used? Or what's your read on this? Well, this, this, I, will, I will use this to discuss one of the things that I've been talking about, which is how ridiculously overmatch the U.S. Uh, military industrial complex is comparing to what China has today. The naval accidents that you just described, there was a Chinese PLA Navy Type 56A Corvette, a comparably small warships, smaller than the, than, than the frigates. The Type 56A is, I believe, 1,800 something count, with 60 crew, but it's fully capable of anti-submarine warfare and other domains of operations. The running to this U.S. destroyer, the Allied Bird class destroyers, that is about 300-something people, I believe. Now, the point here is the Bird class destroyer caused, I believe, 2 billion or 2.5 billion U.S. dollars to build, if my memory serves. The Type 56A Corvette caused something like I believe it was 120 million. If that Type 56A hit the bird class and the two of them went down, the China would have made one of the greatest trade-offs. Then that is a fact. The PLA Navy today has 50 Type 56A. They are making another few dozens. The way that the, the China's shipbuilding industry can outproduce comparable to U.S. shipbuilding is a very telling sign how the state of arms race is going on. And if this continues, you can be sure China will outproduce our manufacturing in the United States. And they have the smart idea to make this Type 56 say, Corvette, which is perfect if you think about it. It's only 60 people, right? It's, it's maintenance, everything. It's like maybe not even one-tenth of a bird-class destroyer, but it does the same anti-submarine warfare job as a, as a, as a bird-class. Right, we have a well-defined problem here of Western nations and Taiwan, in your view, are not maximizing each dollar spent on the military relative to the PLA. Meanwhile, though, you have about a zillion U.S. academics and military experts advocating for all kinds of asymmetric warfare tactics and so-called porcupine strategy, for example. We even have reports from the Wall Street Journal that United States troops are stationed on the island in Taiwan. So perhaps... This indicates that Taiwan is aware of this need to spend its dollars more effectively. What's your take on that? Uh, do you think Taiwan's aware of this problem and ready to address it? 
No, uh, so this goes, goes into my, my criticism of Taiwan's military and, and, and the political military leadership. The essence of, of the problem with Taiwan's military is it has a, a completely dysfunctional uh, civil military relations, and there's the political leadership does not show any warning, not any commitment, any willingness to have a strategy in managing, in, in building its military. And that including especially the current leadership, the President Tsai Ing-wen and, and the ruling party, the Democratic Progressive Party. In fact, I would argue that they, in the last six years, it has been, has been, have been especially worse for Taiwan's defense and military preparedness, even comparing to the previous Mind Joe administration and Chen Shui-bian administration, because the Tsai administration sees the Taiwan's military and defense policy as an electoral tool to generate domestic political support and, sorry to say, pork, pork barrel. That's what, what it is. They use military and defense policy as pork barrel to certify domestic political interest groups and voting blocks. The appointments of senior, uh, senior military generals the, the trainings, the key decisions regarding defense strategies and other things. Well, actually, there's no defense strategy. All these things were made based on political electoral uh, calculations. I'll give you one very quick example. The purchase of the F-16V, the 66 F-16, that was made by President Tsai Ing-wen in 2019. That new order, F-16 order, is, is, is going to aid to Taiwan's or Taiwan's existing F-16 fleet of about 150. The purchase of additional F-16 will add zero value to Taiwan's defense. Why? Because it is well known, well established, almost consensus that the POA would hit Taiwan with hundreds of um, ballistic missiles, low-range rockets, and other munitions in the opening out of the, of the war. And then that would swiftly, decisively knock out Taiwan's air bases runways, which by the way, there are not, many, there are not really many of them. Taiwan had, for some reason, Taiwan's government is trying to, re, trying to retire even more of these remaining runways and air bases. As Soon as these runways are out, no more, gen no more fighter jets can take off or land, no more, in the, which means no more Air Force, which means uh, that no matter the number of SCC you have on the ground, they're, they're completely useless. They have zero relevance. There's a sitting target. In fact, I would argue that more of these unsurvivable platforms that Taiwan buys today, it would speed up Taiwan's demise when war comes. Why? The, in the opening hours of the war, think about it. These Taiwan televisions, they would have their TV crews with their high school lenses pointing at the air bases, how the runways are cratered, how these F6, the shiny F6 things got hit by fragments, by um, some munitions burning on, on tarmac, the, the bunkers they built destroyed by um, bunker bunker bombs, like cluster bombs, and and the the repair personnel kills or injured. Think of how humiliating that image is. They're brand new F-16B sitting on the ground, right, all of them burning. And also, the 
you can, you can go also go to the ports. The, the, the Taiwan's navy, these ships, they can't even go out. They just get, they're just going to get hit. The ballistic missile, the Dongfo series, it takes something like 10 to 12 minutes from Jiangxin to hit Taiwan. Do you know? Do you know how much time it takes for for a Taiwan Navy destroyer to the anchor at port to get out of that to call out people and then put them on uh, battle stations and then and then, and then and then go out? They wouldn't have time. You just get hit, and, and, and you you have 200, 300, 400 dead Taiwanese sailors. Right? So the more unsurvivable platform Taiwan buy, Taiwan maintain, the the, the quicker it is the Taiwan buy. Surrender, capitulate. Just because the the shock effect, the humiliation that would ever come in the, in the opening hour of the war. Interesting, you mentioned it takes. I think you said eleven minutes for a missile to fly across the Taiwan Strait. Because uh, I recall a paper written by Michael Beckley, one of your colleagues, um, and he said, among other things about the Taiwan military, that it actually has the world record in runway repair time. Apparently they keep track of these things, but something like the, the Taiwan military could repair a runway within three hours of it being destroyed. But if, as you said, it takes 11 minutes for a missile to fly across the strait, that wouldn't be very effective. So my question here, um, you mentioned before that the Taiwan's military is suffering in large part because it's run by political hacks and bureaucrats who make decisions not in the best interests of Taiwan's defense, but for political reasons. Why would that be the case, given Taiwan's status as a democracy? Presumably, the ruling party has an interest in producing a military people like. I mean, presumably that the articles and your hot takes on Twitter you put out aren't helpful to the DPP right now, or they wouldn't be helpful to any administration that works on a military that doesn't function. Which kind of political interests is the Tsai administration responding to right now, or the Ma Ying-jeou administration responded to back then, that's making the military dysfunction in the way you described? Well, because Taiwan never had a normal civil-military relations, right? In Taiwan, the, just because the way that it is, what happened has been that the, the senior military leaders, the senior generals the, in the Ministry of National Defense, they get their promotions because of their patronage by DPP government. So, See, in, in the Ministry of National Defense, you have these generals, these, uh, when, they want to, when they want a promotion or they want to undercut their superior, their chain of command, they go to the National Security Council of Taiwan. Well, one, one of these National Security Council be the DPP hacks, and then build relations with them, and then they, they put and, and maybe organize a PR follow-up with one of the DPP legislators or something, and they get a promotion. They get, and that, that, that's how things work these days. The military is not functioning as a military anymore. It's a DPP's PR machine, which, by the way, is, I, I don't think is, is not going to work for the DPP anymore in, in the elections to come, but that's just, that's just what happened. The, the, the DPP, the, president, the Thai government, sees the Taiwan military as an electoral partisan tool. And this is evident in the polls that we have, we have done, that we, we found that the, the confidence in the military is very, very, is very much divided along parties and line. The DPP supporters, they, are like, they, they have a lot of confidence in the military, while the, the supporters of the KMT or TPP have uh, very little confidence. This, this, this just shows the partisan divide. 
and as in the DPP's policy, the Thai, Thai government's uh, their behavior had made this far, far worse. Right. I was going to talk about that as well. You research uh, a lot about Taiwan's public opinion. You pull thousands of people on many different studies every month. And uh, some of the recent results include, for example, the Taiwanese were asked questions about U.S. support. The question was, it says, how likely do you think the United States is to send troops to defend Taiwan if China attacks? And interestingly, in 2020 and 2021, 60% of people thought it was likely the United States would respond. And as of February of 2023, that number was down to 43%. So we've now lost a majority who think the U.S. will support Taiwan. In another poll, we have, if China initiates a war against Taiwan tomorrow, are you confident in our military's ability to defend Taiwan? And 45% are confident or very confident, while 47% have little or no confidence in the military. On the U.S. Uh, confidence in U.S. military interventions, that uh, the reason that uh, there was a collapse of the confidence in 2022 was because entirely because of Ukraine because Taiwanese publics, they saw that the Ukraine got invaded, but the United States did not send troops directly to intervene. And that is why you have a 20 to 30% sweep. After May, after March, 2022, we did several polls after that, and the, the confidence have recovered somehow in the months following 20, um, March, 2022. However, the, I, saw, I saw the latest one, I think it was a few months ago, uh, still, the majority is still, not, still skeptical of U.S. intervention. But yes, then the, the, on that question, it is also pretty divided among partisan line. The DVB supporters are overwhelmingly confident that the United States come to their aid. Why? Because the DVB propaganda is President Tsai and the, 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 the Thai government has the greatest relation with the U.S. And therefore, the United States is going to come to our, our help. And, and you see the pattern here. It's, a, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a psychological dependence. Like uh, in, in, in DPP supporters' mind, President Tsai has the support of the United States. And therefore, even if China attacks, the United States is going to come. It's going to smash the Chinese and save Taiwan. And therefore, we can feel confident. We can feel safe. But one, one side effect of that is also that these DPP supporters, they, they, also, they also think that, well, the eventual, even, even if Taiwan's military and Taiwan's defense can hold out on its own, the United States is going to come we, we will be fine. Uh, so you see the pattern there, that this psychological dependency, this phase in U.S. intervention, leads to terrible policy uh, outcomes. If you have any, any reasonable, any adult in charge of the room, in charge of the country, he or she will have tell everyone, no, the United States is not coming to our, our defense. We need to be defend ourselves. You need to be, we need to be ready, regardless of what the United States do. This is the attitude and leadership that should have been, should, should have been established. But this has not been the case with the DVD government because their entire editorial uh, their, their PR agenda relies on. What about other allies of the U.S. in the region? Presumably it's not in Australia's interest or Japan's interest or South Korea's interest for an invasion of Taiwan. In other words, it doesn't 
wholly rely on the United States' decision to intervene in the event of a PLA invasion. The idea that, uh, that, that, that the cavalry is going to come for Taiwan. Okay, sure. Did you know that uh, the China, the, the PLA, they have been fully anticipated this for decades. This has, been, this has always been their war plan. They assumed the United States and even Japan, even everyone else, will come to fight them if they attack Taiwan. Which is why their whole military, their whole military build-up, their whole defense, their whole military planning are based on the idea that they're going to build this huge strike capacity to deter United States and everyone else from coming to, from intervening in, in, in the Taiwan war scenario. Those who are familiar with the, with, with the discussion on the PLA and then the military balance well, I've heard this term called the A2AB. The PLA itself, they, they, don't, they, don't really, they don't really use this term, but the, but, but the idea is there. It's basically that if the PLA, if the Chinese, they build another of these long-range strike capacity that you oppose such strength, such risk, that United States will not intervene. And I think this is a reasonable, this is a reasonable analysis. The more capacity, the stronger than the PLA is. That's in addition to what it needed to invade Taiwan by itself. The more capacity, the more jets, the more ships, the more rockets, the more missiles, the more uh, sensors, the, the, the satellites they have, the more difficult, the more risky, the more pretty risky it is for a sitting U.S. president to commit U.S. troops, to commit U.S. aircraft carrier come to Taiwan's defense. This is logical. This is, this is 100% what the, the calculation is. There is no blank check to defend Taiwan, where the US president or Japan prime minister or Australian prime minister or whatever that is, they would look at the picture and say, his or her advisors were going to tell, going to tell them what the POA has. The, they have ever carried the destroyer, they have a uh, long-range supersonic anti-ship missiles, they have anti-ship ballistic missiles, they have these carrier theaters, they have, uh, they have hundreds of satellites in the space, they have this, and if we commit our aircraft carrier, let's say we have 50% chance of this carrier gets attacked and destroyed in the first six hours, I'm saying. Right, and, and then that, that the US president is going to make the decision based on that information, based on that calculation, based on that risk assessment. So I don't think it's controversial to say if the PLA build up its capacity to such extent, you will just probably not entirely, but decreases the probability that the United States committing to defend Taiwan by force. So the question, the question is, what was the PLA's capability today in the anti-assets, anti-denial? I'll give, I'll, give I'll give you a very quick um, data. The China satellite fleet the amount of number of satellites doubled from year 2019 to 2021. And yesterday, June 15, 2023, one of their long-range long, long rockets, these heavy lifting rockets, they just made another successful launch. They launched another 60 small satellites into, the, into space. Think about this number, 60. The, the entirety of Taiwan's little underfunded space program, we have not even launched six satellites, right? 
The China, just yesterday, one of the rocket launched another six into space, and those are remote, what we call remote sensing satellites. You have many satellites. You have remote sensing satellites, you have imagery satellites, you have signal intelligence satellites, you have measurement satellites, uh, communication satellites, data relay satellites. All of these satellites are critical in forming what we call a kill chain. If you want to use your ballistic missile to hit the US aircraft carrier, you need to know where the aircraft carrier is, you need to track the aircraft carrier, you need to, you need to update your ballistic missile as they fly in a given terminal guidance. And guess what? By doubling its satellite fleet in two years, China just completed the, the last part of its kill chain. That the, the capability that's going to put the U.S. aircraft carrier at risk. And this is going to go into a decision-making room in the White House. What about other factors that will go on in the White House decision-making room? For example, the, the political will to fight, the, the utter horror at which a liberal democracy will watch a large authoritarian nation invade a small democratic island. Well, that will certainly play a huge role in the hearts and minds of the electorate of every Western country. Is there anything to be said for this notion of mutually assured destruction? Which is to say, the United States and other Western countries and allies in the Pacific may, even given the cost you mentioned, decide to intervene on matters of principle or morals. It's perfectly clear to everyone in the world that a great power war would cause untold death and cause an economic heart attack. There seems to be a notion of mutually assured destruction. You threaten the international liberal order and it will cause untold fatalities and calamities in the world. And that would gravely affect the well-being of not the least of which are China's 1.4 billion citizens. And this would, in a direct way, threaten the legitimacy of Xi Jinping and his Chinese communist party, which will certainly be a factor, even without the use of nuclear weapons. Do you have a response to that? Is, is Xi Jinping willing to bet his legacy and the longevity of the CCP on taking Taiwan. That is exactly why if they move on to Taiwan to take Taiwan by force, they want the decisive strike, they want a decisive war to force Taiwan to capitulate as soon as possible. What they don't want is a long campaign, weeks, months of maritime disruption, blockade, disruption in shipping. Most of the shipping to Shanghai the oils and the energy, they also go to Taiwan Strait. So they want to start and end this fight, and this fight as quickly, as decisive as possible. This is their constraint. This is what, realistically, what, what they, they, they were aim for. So with that being said, you can already rule out several, several examples, several things that people talk about. So, so maritime blockade, I don't think it's going to happen just because that would hurt China's economy in China. Besides, they have the capacity to, to do this overwhelming all-out strike in, in the first few hours. Why would they want a weeks-long, months-long blockade that disrupt the whole Chinese economy, potentially putting their regime at risk? They don't. And also, they do not want to destroy Taiwan. The ultimate outcome is quick, decisive war that forced Taiwan to capitulate, they turn Taiwan into another Hong Kong or a puppet regime, and they get whatever it is that Taiwan has. They want to keep what Taiwan has. They don't want to destroy what Taiwan has. Are those hopes justified, though? For example, on the economic front, 
It's unimaginable to me that TSMC would continue to operate after a successful Chinese invasion. TSMC, in order to produce the leading edge chips it does, requires daily software updates, mostly from Western-based companies. They could just easily stop providing critical software updates and voila, the whole world has lost 90% of its supply of advanced semiconductors. I just, I don't see that going on. And moreover, I think the, the political cost as well to China, the international arena, would be extremely great. And also it's unclear whether the PLA or the CCP has any plan on how they would rule Taiwan after they take it. What's, what's the plan for assuming they are able to gain control of all the island? How exactly would you subjugate 24 million people? And how exactly would you convince them to be happier to join a country with a much lower per capita GDP, with far fewer freedoms, and you know, limited access to media and open society. In other words, in what universe could an invasion of Taiwan really be successful? So that goes back to, like, yes, given the constraints that we know China has, he doesn't want the war to go too long. He doesn't want the, it, it to be too extensive to disrupt everything. Given that, I think it's reasonable to conclude that the thing that people always talk about Taiwan's defense, it's really just not going to happen. They talk about amphibious invasion. Now, think, so you have these less informed experts, writers. They always talk about, oh, how, how difficult Taiwan's terrain is, how difficult it is to cross sea, to cross Taiwan Sui. Oh, only a few months per year you can do that. No. Putting aside the, the fact that these are, these are really uninformed, that's total, totally false uh, takes on the issue. There's no, I don't see that China needs to. Overwhelming air and naval strikes in the south of Taiwan, knock out Taiwan's command control, even political, senior political and, and military leaderships, taking out Taiwan's uh, missile forces, anti-air missile forces, anti-ship missile forces, you take out Taiwan's uh, tooth and nail. And then in the process that you have footage on the name Taiwan TV, all these epic things, all these big shiny destroyers, uh, frigates burning in the, in the ports, hundreds, thousands of Taiwan's sailors and pilots died. And, and, and very, at very little cost to China itself. And they have just accomplished a huge victory. And in fact, at that point, Beijing could just declare a victory and pretend that, and, and then, well, they don't even pretend, they actually had the score of victory, and they say, we have a unilateral ceasefire. Everything goes back to normal. Then how is that going to do? You, can, you have no more Air Force, you have no more Navy, but yes, you, you, don't have a, you don't have a land invasion, but you are totally humiliated, you're totally, and at that point, the China give you the ultimatum. You, you, you sign a ceasefire, uh, unconditional uh, surrender, the ceasefire that they, for, the, for the end of uh, hostility, and we can go back to normal. Which is a very high chance that Taiwan's leadership at that point will sign that, that, that ceasefire just because it loses all the, all the chips, all the guards on the table. Right? And then, you, of course, you, you can hope, you can hinge on the hope that well, Taiwan will uh, persist and then mobilize a few million people. Okay, how about? You just lose your marine, marine town supply, supplies, you lose your... So they, the China doesn't even do, need, need a blockade anymore. Just because they, 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 they control whatever is going to Taiwan. You need, you need to beg them for, for natural gas, for food, for shipping, for, for oil coming to Taiwan. 
right? And then you and then your uh, underseas uh, cable car, you need to beg them to repair those. Otherwise, you have no internet, you have no telephone, you have no, and all those things. So the, the, at that point, Taiwan will capitulate. You don't think it can go the other way? Uh, for example, in World War II, when Japan assessed that in order to achieve their interests in the Pacific and counter the oil embargo, they would have to do a, a quick strike on Pearl Harbor. The United States saw horrific images of 2,000 sailors being killed and ships burning in Hawaii. And at the time, the United States industrial base was in no condition to fight a world war. We were already very concerned about Europe. And we were still living in our world where in George Washington's ideology, the United States would make no formal alliances with any other country. But these, these horrific images of, of death and freedom being assaulted had precisely the opposite effect and launched the United States and the world in a different direction. Is there something to be said for the whole world watching a massive barrage of Chinese missiles flying over the Taiwan Strait and that being a rallying effect? Well, we know what happened after Pearl Harbor. The United States uh, went into total war setting, mobilized the entirety of its economy to build ships, planes, rifles, artillery, guns, munitions. And in two years, three years' time, you completely over, overwhelmed anything that Japan could, could produce. Overwhelmed Japan and Germany, Nazi Germany. Today, that will be China. United States has no more industrial base to mobilize. I'm sorry. It does not have the engineers, does not have the welders, does not have the builders, the, 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 the machinists, the whoever, whatever that is, to build new ships. To build new planes, can be a new artillery, munitions, missiles. There's, there are already there are so many recordings out there about the difficulty they have in producing, in supplying, just supplying Ukraine. These American factories, they can't find enough skilled labor to fill the job. They can't, they can't size, they can't expand. If there is a total war going on, it will be China that mobilizes the entirety of the economy. That outproduce anything that the United States with these Western allies could, could produce. But go back to your question. Okay, what can what can what can Taiwan do? Well, so starter, stop buying, fielding, useless stuff. Like this M16. The more M16 you have, the more M16 is going to be burning on the ground when when China attack. And the more M16 burning on on the tarmac, the more likely it is Taiwan's. Uh, President was surrendered. Naturally, these these were logical conclusion. These unsurvivable platforms should be retired and just forget about it. That the, and these big big naval warships, they are not going to survive and they are going to be a burden because when they get when they get destroyed, either in the port or out in the high sea, with hundreds of sailors on them, they they are going to uh, move Taiwan closer to capitulation. So you, you remove things that could force, that could compel Taiwan to, 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 to surrender, capitulate, and you increase things that, that, that could survive, that Taiwan could use to hit back. If, if you manage to hit one or two of these POA Type 52, Type 55 destroyers, right, and you, and then you kill 120 POA sailors, and you have the, the footage of a burning Type 55, Oh yeah, that, that, that even is the, 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 the score a little bit, and that makes Taiwan look much better, and then that keeps Taiwan, to boost Taiwan's morale, and gives the international community, the U.S. and whoever, that 
time and the space to mobilize uh, uh, defend the uh, resource to, to help Taiwan prolong this conflict and the long and if this drags on, the China loses. What other things can the Taiwan military be doing to, like you said, prolong the conflict? I think the bottom line is my writings and research about Taiwan's military, about what's wrong with it, that needs to be fixed. The training, the, the institution, the leadership, the personnel, the, the tactics and strategy that we have observed, everything has to, has to change. Otherwise, this, this military just, is just going to be what it is. Because they, they don't improve. They don't even know how to hold uh, like basic rifle uh, firearm safety. And they don't even uh, have a good plan on what, what they're going to do after they lose command, control, communication with the headquarters. And that's the kind of thing that would, that, that would destroy your defenses. Right? If, you, if your troops lose communication with top leadership, the top leadership seems everyone else dead. He or she will surrender, even if the troops are still there. Where can listeners find all of your recommendations? Obviously, all your hot takes are on Twitter at Paul Huang Report. Where else can we find your recommendations for Taiwan military? Well, other other writers within Taiwan that have written quite a bit about on the issues. I'm not really, I'm, not, I'm very far from the number one. I'm not in number ten, not top ten expert on the topic. Emerald Li Ximing, uh, retired Emerald Li Ximing, had written a new book on the topic. Uh, well, it's good that the overall defense concept. I don't agree with everything Emerald Li proposes, but he does a great job pointing out many of the issues that are highlighted. And if you want to listen to me, or listen to this guy, a former retired Emerald, but if you can read Chinese, read his book. And he has, he has some great insight into it. Paul Wong, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
to peace.